Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. With the third pick in the 2019 NBA Draft, the New York Knicks select R.J. Barrett. What's up, everybody? It's your boy, the one and only Prez. I'm here with part. I'm here with a special guest to help me with part one of a special two-part episode. So there's a lot of special going around here. Um, this is the part of draft season where we've covered most of the players. So we're instead asking a bunch of funny questions to help us further understand players about whom we have already spoken about. So uh, to help me answer some of those questions, I have Chuck of the Chucking Darts podcast. That's at Chucking Darts on Twitter. What's up, Prez? How are we? How are we doing today? (laughs) We're great. It really took a village to raise this episode, and we're just now starting to record it. So I'm very, I'm very honored anytime that I get uh, the privilege of appearing on your show. Listeners, I had to delay the start of this podcast by like a minute because I was laughing at a joke, and I didn't even end up delivering the joke because I panicked at the last time. No, it's okay. <laughs> there, there's, Chuck has many nicknames, many punny nicknames on Twitter, right? The Dartist. Uh, what did you say was the other one? I don't. The Dartist is my favorite. I was gonna say Charles <laughs> D'Artagnan, like the Three Musketeers. <laughs> But um, there you go. Oh, Just to claim God. that because I know nobody has uh, unleashed that one yet. Yeah, um, not, not quite big enough yet to get the parody accounts going. But I can't wait. That's that's tremendous. Yeah, yeah. Talk soon. It'll happen. Um, <laughs> but before we get started, I do have to make an announcement. The Strickland has a Patreon. You can subscribe to it. There's a number of tiers. There's a $6 tier that gets you access to Pod Strickland every Friday that I do with Prez. It also gets you access to our weekly – or sorry – our mailbag that we do every other week with Jeremy and Drew. Furthermore, you get access to the Strickland Discord where you can talk about the Knicks and many other things all the time with other Patreons. There's a $9 here that gets you access to this pod right here. Strick and Roll, my solo pod where I yell and rant and rave about the Knicks even more. Uh, more importantly, you get access to weekly articles by the wonderful Jack Huntley and Matthew Miranda, two of the best writers in the business there's further tiers there's a 15 dollars tier 30 dollars tier 50 dollars tier and a hundred dollar tier those come with a variety of additional benefits like live watch parties listening on pod recordings merchandise discounts and even potentially co-hosting a podcast with yours truly but whether you choose to subscribe or not none of this would be possible without you so Without further ado, let's get started. So the big question that uh, listeners that I have Chuck here to help me with is what I am calling uh, as a shorthand the 66th 
percentile question. And what that means is, you know, we often break prospects down into what's their low end outcome, median or medium outcome, or high end and outlier outcome, right? Like we can all name guys who mostly uh, fit into those categories, you know, Dennis Smith Jr. is probably a low end outcome, right? Like guys who were who they were supposed to be, you know, like, I don't know. Uh, Jared Mel- Culver. Jared Culver's one. Jared Culver to me is a low end outcome. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, someone like McCall Bridges, for example, might be, is that a median outcome? Is that a high end outcome? I don't know, right? Like, th- there's questions about that. And I think actually most non bust players fall somewhere between median and high end outcome. And to me, high end outcome means something drastically unexpected happened or more than one some things that were drastically unexpected happened. Um, Jordan Poole is a currently relevant example of that. Um, for me personally, I would say, I mean, we, we might could use a little more sample size, but I would personally say Emmanuel quickly has already hit that level of just like doing many things that I didn't think he would do, even though I was fairly high on him. Um, so most of the most players are not going to hit that like outlier development, but they're going to get better is the point. And the successes are ones who get better at a better rate than people expected. So that's what I'm here to talk about. You know, what are some guys in the past who have fallen into that category? What are, you know, what what do some of those 66th percentile outcomes look like uh, for some of the guys in the Knicks range this year? Um, and, you know, it's a big, those are some big philosophical questions there, which is why we're dividing this into a two-parter. Um, so before we get into it, I'm going to, I'm going to stop there and let Chuck give some reflections on this, perhaps why it's interesting, perhaps why Prez is overthinking things and searching deep, too deep for podcast topics as we get closer to lottery day. <laughs> Not possible, man. Not possible. You, If you think that you've gone too far, you haven't gone far enough. Um, I love this question for a, a, a few reasons. One is that it it forces us to reconcile with evaluations that in and of themselves may not have been accurate, right? Because when you say such and such player hit, like you mentioned Jordan Poole, and he's on my mind since that game's about to tip. But like this is a high-end outcome. Who, who could have expected this out of Jordan Poole? I mean, if you ask Jordan Poole, he would say, <laughs> I expected this out of myself. I didn't doubt myself for a second. Absolutely. And you go, well, well Jordan, you're, you don't really count. I mean, like anyone who would objectively look at your game who really knew your game. And he go, well, who knows my game better than me? And you're like, well, no, 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 I didn't mean that. I didn't mean to insult you. So it, it forces you to sit, think of, are the expectations that we hold these players, that we hold for these players, are they accurate and are they appropriate? Jordan Poole, for the record, as a guard at Michigan, over two years, including one year, I believe, where he was an 18-year-old freshman, shot 70% at the rim and shot 38 39% from three on a ton of volume. So it showed right away that he had the burst and he could finish and he could hit deep threes. So I don't know. I mean, this is still probably a high-end outcome for him because mm-hmm. 
you know, most guys who make nine figures in the NBA, it's safe to say they hit a, a high end outcome, but it, whatever outcome was expected for him was the wrong one. Cause he went 28th and he shouldn't have right. gone 28. Right. So it, I, I like it for that reason. Number one, um, number two, I like that, um, it forces you to, to think about different areas of development. What are the most common areas in which players improve? What are the most predictive areas in which players can improve? You know, generally speaking, you'd think it would be in shooting. Like shooting is the skill that every team thinks that it can teach its prospects now. And so, you know, we mentioned Jared Culver at the top that's a guy whose shot didn't improve. And if we wanted to analyze... It got worse, some would say. <laughs> yeah, and you're you're the shot doctor, especially out of the two of us. So, I mean, I would kick that to you for the specifics, but there are there's levels to everything. And, you know, to assume that shots just universally get better in the NBA is to ignore cases like Culver or... Um, or ignore the on the other end, Dennis Smith Jr., who if Dennis you go Smith- look at his shots at NC State, that thing looks beautiful. Yeah, and it's it also dismisses the efforts of guys like Fred Vinson in New Orleans, who is renowned as one of the very best shooting coaches in the league. I mean, if if shots are universally expected to get better, then he isn't really adding any value because what good is a shooting coach if they're all the same? But we know that you know. Herb Jones's shot would not necessarily have come along so quickly just on any other team in the league. And that Brandon Ingram's shot wouldn't have so smoothly improved just on any other team in the league. So I really think that um, it's an important question to think about improvement because as much as we analyze these guys pre-draft, the really good people who do draft analysis are ones who understand improvement, who understand how to project improvement, and who focus most of their analysis on improvement. Because every good player in the NBA has improved a lot since coming in. So if you're just analyzing who the player is more than who you think the player is going to be, then you've got to alter your shot diet, so to speak. Yeah, and you know, not all improvement, like you kind of hinted at it, not all improvement... Not all improvement is low-hanging fruit. Some of it is low-hanging fruit. So, like, to use shooting, uh, I used to have the information. I don't have it anymore. But um, B-Ball Index, you know, they have their awesome grades and stuff like that. And they had uh, – I asked Tim from B-Ball Index a while back to send me, like, basically the age curve for their shooting perimeter grade. Mm-hmm. Like, the average improvement by age. And he sent it to me and compared to compared it to other to other stats. And this is a really rough way of doing it, like hatchet job level rough. And <laughs> sure enough, like there was pretty consistent improvement, um, particularly in the non-center positions um, in shooting. And they were uh, fairly significant. And that's all well and good. But some shooting improvements are bigger than others, right? And then within shooting, you're like, okay, are, are we talking about getting a bum to be a good shooter? Are we talking about getting a good shooter? What are we? What about like getting Tyrese Halliburton to shoot off the dribble? Right. I super whiffed on Tyrese largely 
because uh, I didn't think he would shoot off the dribble with his weird ass shot. And it caused me to think much harder afterwards about why that was. And my conclusion was that for somebody who's extremely good shooting off the catch or shooting while stable, off the dribble shooting is really going from dribbling to shooting a stable shot for the most part. That's like an oversimplification because not all off the dribble shots are super stable, but like for purposes of the easiest off the dribble shot, which is one or two dribbles, someone goes under the screen and I shoot it. That's really what it is. And if somebody has a solid handle coming into the league, it's a lot easier for them to go hit those, develop the ability to go from dribbling once or twice to shooting than it is if somebody has hardly dribbled at all before mm-hmm. coming to the NBA, right? So that's like one example. And then, of course, there's other things that are really, that I don't even know how to project whether they're low-hanging fruit or not. Like the last month and a half, two months of the season, Emmanuel quickly started driving to the hoop for layups instead of floaters. And that seems pretty difficult because most of the players who I want to do that, like Lonzo Ball, never end up doing that. They just... They're just content doing the things other than taking layups for whatever reason. And that's, that's it. Those players are usually good at other stuff. So it's fine. But like, if you asked me, you know, some people have asked me, like, is that, is that likely what quickly did? Is that rare? And I'm like, I legit don't have any fucking idea. I haven't seen (laughs) it that often. So I'm going to guess rare, but like, I genuinely don't know. Like, that's not an easy stat. It's not like, Oh, what, you like you look of drives not really because some players drive but don't shoot it gets me anyway that's all to say like i'm with you 100 percent. improvement improvement is the name of the game it's pretty easy to tell if a player was productive in college it's just a question of what how they project to change um and real quick before we get into specific players i did want to bring up one like the reverse anecdote of your Jordan Poole thing where, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a hundred percent certain like you, that Jordan Poole is like, yeah, I'm just shit deal with it. But like, <laughs> I will not fans of the Strickland and people who follow me on Twitter know that I was among the highest people on the internet on Grant Riller, literally higher than Grant Riller himself. I found out, which <laughs> is never something you want to find out about a player you are high on. Well, what's that story? So, I was watching pre-draft stuff and, uh, you know, Mike Smith from ESPN conducts all these interviews and sometimes he sits down with them and goes through plays and other time he interviews them like at a combine or at a camp or something like that. And he was interviewing Grant Riller at the combine and he was asking Grant Riller like what he, how he compares his you know, like how he projects his game and what he sees himself to be. Mind you, I'm over here with Grant Riller in the top fucking 10 of the entire class of that year. Yeah. And and he's out here talking about, you know, I think I could be a good bench spark plug, kind of like Dennis Schroeder. And that's when I was like, oh, I fucked up. Like, come on, Grant. I need you to have more confidence than that. Nobody likes Dennis Schroeder, except Dennis Schroeder. Like... <laughs> This is not the move, man. You have to have higher irrational confidence for yourself, given your skills. And uh, that's not the only reason why he has, you know, he, he's dealt with some injuries and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, it really well, hold holds true. Now. That, was, that was the 2020 draft, right? So 
the the Dennis Schroeder that he'd just seen was on the Thunder, and they took the Rockets to like seven. That was good, Dennis. I mean, that was quote unquote good, Dennis. But like, (laughs) he was still playing with Chris Paul. (laughs) That's like a cheat code. We all knew that's not the Dennis whoever the next team was getting, which is why he ended up getting what is it like one year deals or whatever. That's not yeah. I mean, he's not a bum or anything. He's still solid. It's just. I mean, he apparently was offered $84 million by the Lakers and turned it down because he wanted to bet on himself. But that's uh, that's a whole other. We're really going to get into tangents then. That's a wonderful story. And by the way, I had a first-round grade on Grant Riller, too. So did a lot of people online. So you don't have to feel too bad. I convinced – I'm pretty sure I convinced no less than a quarter of Nick's Twitter to, Twitter to lotto Grant Riller. <laughs> just single-hand. Like, I wheeled – that's when I was like, no one man should have this much power. Like, it's it was too much <laughs> – uh, I'm trying to be more reflecting and more humble in my analysis these days. That's not it even is. the worst whiff I've had. It's just the most, like, I was, I fucking loved Grant Riller's game so much. I, hey, man, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna argue with you. I do like that you see that you're trying to be humble by admitting how much power you wielded. That's really, <laughs> it's really big of you. You know, someone's got to do it. It's that's uh, right. It's not. It's not easy. But let's get into it. So, I guess the place to start before we talk about the current draft class is: Are there any? We can start one of two ways, and I, and I'll ask you what you prefer. One is like we could just start trying to fucking guess guys who have had that sort of sixty-sixth percentile outcome of recent years. Or we could, uh, if you have anybody in mind, we could just go straight to them. I have a couple of players in mind. Um, I can just throw some names out there. Um, Why don't you throw some names out? Let's do that. All right. So for me, the most fun, the most formative and fun draft year uh, for me personally was 2018. Because by then I had a couple of years under my belt of amateur, amateuristic draft shit posting on the internet, mostly on posting and toasting.com in the comment section and a little bit on Twitter. And that was one where who do we get in the draft became a little bit more of a mainstream, like draft Twitter was kind of hitting his, its stride. Like the Stepien had come out. Finally, all those dudes from the Stepien weren't hired by the NBA yet. So there was more than just, NBA DraftNet and Draft Express for the first time, really. So it became, it was the first year that the kind of discussions were open to a larger crowd of both casual draft fans and super nerdy draft fans like us. And in Knicks land, you know, we, we ended up having a, a mid-late lotto pick like we have this year, um, the ninth pick. And there was a lot of discussion about all of those guys out of the top tier. So, you know, Wendell, Sexton, Knox, both the Bridges, SGA. Um, Zaire Smith was a huge favorite of analytics folks. Um, Porter? Any yeah, Porter, Porter Jr. And that was a whole fun, weird discussion because of his injuries and things like that. Um, I mean, not fun for him, but whatever. And then, like, down the line, it was also a fun draft a little later because you had guys like Anthony Simons and Landry Shamet and Robert Williams and Jalen Brunson and Mitchell Robinson. And like, so it was just kind of a fun draft all the way down. Um, DeAnthony Melton way there at the end, like 
these guys, like there, there was an, a lot of interesting players who ended up being pretty good. So uh, I, I want to focus, like, it's not like obviously Michael Porter Jr. had a very high outcome. So like we don't have to talk about guys like that or guys like Trey Young or Luca or DeAndre Ayton because those guys all were pretty much as advertised or better. But that middle group is what I'm interested in, especially since a lot of them are either about to get paid or have gotten paid. So we could start with the guy who went um, a pick before the Knicks, which is Colin Sexton, who's kind of interesting and more complicated because of the uh, the injury. So like, I legit have no idea what his market even is. I don't even remember what his injury was. I just remember it was horrible timing and I felt really bad for him. His knee, I believe. I think it was a knee, but I don't think it was like an ACL or anything. But yeah, so yeah. Colin, like, he was a very divisive player coming out. Um, nobody doubted his ability to take shots and his competitiveness and his ability. His free throw rate was crazy. Like, we knew that was an important stat by then. Um, it was clear that he could dribble the ball and penetrate. And even though he was undersized, like, the questions for him were more like defense and shooting and passing. And he answered the shooting question mostly. Um, he became really efficient. Um, defense was kind of tough to overcome when you're that little, um, and not a big boy like Lowry or Van Fleet or something. And the passing, we also have kind of an incomplete picture because he was forced to not play point guard most of the time. And he was pretty much the sole source of like, bail me out. Here's, here's the grenade shots for that team because, Garland made his jump this year in shot creation and not last year. So Colin kind of sat on that grenade for a lot of that Cavaliers team. So like, not to say he's, you know, Steve Nash waiting to be discovered, but like, anyway, I, my gut reaction is this motherfucker scored 25 points on good efficiency. So I'm going to say that's better than 66 percentile outcome. I don't even care about the other stuff. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I think that's right. And like, it highlights that, like, th- this stuff is really hard because Sexton was, he had, when you were imagining what your expectations are of him pre-draft and what your eval is going to be, I mean, you are just evaluating a freshman. And Sexton, I think, was a young freshman. It's not as though there was yeah. a giant sample size on him to work from. And I know that his sort of signature moment his freshman year was when his team had to go three on five and he kept a minute and everything. But if that happened in a movie, I would be like, this is so stupid. <laughs> and it happened in real life, which is crazy. <laughs> yeah. And if you look at his numbers, his um, freshman year, they're good. Like they are certainly good. And like you mentioned the free throw rate, he, his free throw rate was nearly 60, which just to, for comparison's sake, Jay Nivey, who is also, you know, crazy first step, explosive downhill guard, his free throw rate is in the high 40s as a sophomore. And Sexton's as a freshman is in the high 50s. Um, tons and tons of volume. You know, he got up over 300 twos and, you know, shot 50% on them, which is all right. And one of the criticisms of Sexton's game in the pros, especially early in the pros, is that um, essentially is that he was a ball hog, that he wouldn't look to teammates. And 
that um, even though the Cavs didn't have, you know, the best, most offensively gifted teammates around him, it was the idea was that he was missing reads and that he wasn't distributing the ball property. Well, if you properly, if you go back and look at his stats, his assist rate was really good at Alabama. It was 28, which is right in line with, you know, very good point guard prospect numbers, particularly for a freshman. And that's one of the things I really like doing in my draft work is going back and looking at guys who had a certain narrative about them as pros, like Sexton's a ball hog or this guy can't shoot. And you go back and look at their college stats and this guy who couldn't shoot, like Ja, for example, this, you know, criticism on him early in his career is that he couldn't shoot. You, you know, you want to leave him open and let him shoot threes. He shot 38% on like decent volume and he shot 80% from the line at Murray State. Like, and it just, it drives home that uh, good players are really, really good. And they like, they let you know, even in their perceived weaknesses, that they at least have talent. And so for Sexton, I mean, I think that, do you think that he was a worthy top 10 pick at the time? Because I think some people considered that pick a reach, particularly in that class. Yeah, it's me. I'm some people. I definitely <laughs> I'm some people too. So, but yeah, <laughs> he is like he, he is solid. It's just to me, uh, despite his strengths being very strong, which is generating his own shot. Like he, like you said, his usage rate is crazy. Um, thirty two point nine percent in the lotto this year. The only person close to that is um Johnny Davis, who's thirty two and a half percent. Pretty much everyone else is, except for Tyree Eason, is below thirty. So yeah, he was taking they, a lot of shots out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, the, the whole, like, uh, to me, he needed to be a a one at his size and yep. needing to have drastic improvements in three separate, distinct, unrelated skills and passing defense and perimeter shooting it was just too much. Like, you could have great development in one of those and still be a, which he did, right? Like in shooting in particular. And yeah, still, shot, shot 34% on like okay volume and, you know, was almost a 50-40, like 85 guy or whatever. Yeah, and became a, a knockdown mid-range shooter, like very, very good mid-range shooter, if I'm not mistaken. So like he had legit great development, like I would say better than average shooting development. And But I mean, he still is what he is at defense and He's an all right passer and he probably had a rough situation to display his passing, but like, can he play point guard without like another offensive hub? I don't know. I probably wouldn't bet on it. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that that's kind of like, is that player, then you get into the kind of related question of like, is that player useful? Like, I don't know. Is Jordan Clarkson useful? Yeah, totally. Is that useful for the eighth pick? Probably. Honestly, like, it probably is. That's probably a fine outcome to be a really good, like, fifth, sixth guy. So am I hating? Possibly. <laughs> you know, like, is, is that 66th percentile development? At least. Definitely. Yeah, just, I, despite I, I, all the flaws. Yeah, I think at least. I think that what we found, what we know about Sexton for sure is that he is a rare combination of, like, undeniable NBA skill. Like he, no matter where he plays, he's going to get downhill. He's going to score, but 
you have to combine that undeniable skill with very like context dependent fit. Like he needs to be in the right situation in order to be a part of winning teams. And Cleveland accounts for his weaknesses in some ways because Mobley and Allen provide such a, a high baseline of defensive value that it's going to paper over some of his, his flaws. But if you put him and Garland together in the backcourt, then I think you're sort of hamstringing how far that team can go. If you imagine him on a team where he is the smallest player on the floor and that he's surrounded by wings and bigs, so he doesn't have to share the floor with another guy kind of his size. If he, for example... Like Garland is right now when Sexton's not playing. Exactly. And, you know, there's rumors that Detroit might be interested in him. If you imagine him with... Cade and Sadiq Bay and say Chet Holmgren or something, whoever they draft, then you start to see, oh, well, I can see how this could work in a winning situation. And if he is this same hyper-efficient scorer, but is now on a winning team and is helping them win, then there's no question that that's an acceptable outcome for an eighth overall pick. It's just that he needed to find the right situation. And then you get into a philosophy of, well, then is that really a good pick? Because that means that his drafting team doesn't really reap the rewards of his career. And that that's a whole other, you know, sort of side question. But that's sort of, I, have, I incorporate that a lot into my own draft work when I'm thinking about outcomes. Because if you're going to be a quote-unquote second draft guy, then I'm going to put you a little lower than I would have otherwise. Other people don't do that. Other people just look at straight up, what will the ultimate productivity level of yeah. your career be? And yeah. you know, that's to each their own. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And yet another wrinkle is like the rumors that Garland is willing to take a pay cut to keep him. Right. And it shows yeah. you that I, I, I think it shows you that Garland is aware of, you know, he's not just taking a pay cut for a friend, although I'm sure that's part of it. It's also like they need shot creation. Karras was brought in to provide some of that penetration and shot creation, but he also brings you, you know, some other Karras stuff. So like, it's, it's good to have more of that. And uh, as great as Garland is, like he, he seems to know that although Garland don't take a pay cut, get your money, boy. Uh, I'm not a fan of players doing that. Anyway, um, (laughs) let's pivot to another player who both of you, I mean, both of you, both of us uh, had the same conclusion on, um, was R.J. Barrett. He's the first guy who came to mind as somebody who thus far has had roughly 66th percentile outcome. He's, you know, he's had his strengths coming in, which was literally his strength and his ability to drive and generate shots out of driving. Um, You know, the whole, a bad layup is better than a a decent mid-range shot or whatever, even though he took plenty of mid-range shots, both at Duke and in the NBA. Um, he, his shooting development was infamously delayed a year thanks to, uh, some Nick's former Nick's shooting coaches who will remain unnamed on this podcast, um, who decided that he should not incorporate the tweaks he was working on with Drew Hanlon. And, uh, it wasn't until that coach left the organization that he incorporated that and came back and magically shot well. Um, so you know, he's 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 now a solid spot-up shooter, and this past year he began experimenting 
uh, with off the dribble shots and baby movement shots and shit like that. Um, his defense got a lot better. Then it took a little step back, but that's probably because he was doing a lot more on offense and he wasn't getting as much help this year as last year from his front court. So, you know, there's definitely a lot of moving parts, but um, how, how do you put him so far on the improvement spectrum? I, I, so if you view 66% as like what most good players, if that's the number we're according most good players, I would say he is on schedule. Mm -hmm. I think that at, at his age, given what he was as a freshman at Duke, not necessarily as the number yeah. one high school recruit. Another young freshman too. Just yes. Like I, I think this is what you would want to see from him. Like RJ is good enough. And what is he 21 now? Was this his like yeah. age 21 season? He is good enough to play big minutes on a playoff team. Yeah. Now, I don't know that he's good enough to be like the number one scoring option on a like a playoff team right now, but you could with his level of defense. And that's where I think a lot of meaningful development has taken place for him. There's just, there's such a uh, demand in the league for guys who can switch across multiple positions, hold up strength wise against powerful drivers in the playoffs and who can still give you something on offense. And, you know, RJ, I think his true shooting was like 51 this year. And so he's still figuring out how to be a primary offensive option and how to go from sort of the catch and go player he was um, when the Knicks made the playoffs to sort of a driver of a playoff offense. But it's as long as he's able to provide some value there, then he's going to be a, a playoff worthy wing for a very long time. And if you're a playoff worthy wing at, at 20, 21, 22, then by the time you're 27, 28, you can have a couple years of really good shooting where a playoff worthy wing becomes an all-star wing. And you know, then you're in business. So one thing that he and Sexton have in common is that both you know, pre-draft, the narrative about them was how maniacally they worked. And, you know, that's something that when I first started doing draft stuff, I, you know, I paid attention to it, but I didn't accord it that much importance because I just assumed that these guys all work really hard. Like it's hard to make the NBA without working really hard. And so I wasn't going to, I wanted to avoid making negative assumptions about yeah. anyone in that area. So I sort of just gave everyone an even grade, especially because pre-draft, you're going to, you're going to hear that about everyone because everyone's camp is going to be pumping them up as a gym rat and, and so forth. Um, but with certain guys, it really does stick out. Like they're even among a hardworking like draft crop, there's going to be people who are like, borderline unwell with how maniacally they work on their game. And Sexton and Barrett, I think both fit into that. And with guys who had, you know, you can call it low hanging fruit, but just very identifiable areas in which to improve. And for both of them, it was their shot. You knew that they were going to work on their shot over and over and over again. And, you know, that's why they've both gotten better at it. They're, you know, RJ's not all the way there. But he knows he needs to work on off the dribble threes. Like it's just 
and it's hard to say that he can just sort of will it into existence or anything like that. But again, you go back and look at his college numbers. He, uh, from, I mean, Bartorvik calls it far too, but it's basically like mid range and out, like sort of 10 feet to 20 feet. He shot 38%, which is a pretty good number on 200 shots. Like he just, his volume was always so high. And even though he didn't shoot threes well, he shot 235 of them as that a freshman. On a, I slept on the most. Um, yeah. One of the biggest lessons I learned from RJ. I have distinct memories of other Knicks podcasters who I shall leave nameless and then promptly name in the Twitter replies once this is posted, <laughs> uh, who are good friends who engaged me in some uh, discussions about RJ versus Isaac Okoro. And they have a lot of similarities, especially physically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, big brolic six foot six dudes with long arms and use their strength in different ways. Good passers, bad shooters coming into the league. But the question I could not wrap, never wrap my mind around at the time was like, you can't just magically say to somebody, take more shots. That's a skill. And at mm-hmm. the time of that draft, I had RJ like this, that draft. I had some, there were some whiffs in that draft for Prez. Among them, uh, you know, <laughs> guys that I had in front of him, you know, Jarrett Culver, like, I don't really regret my Jarrett Culver analysis too much because of the aforementioned shot going to hell. But that's one thing, um, you know, generate generating your shot. I focus more on the efficiency of the shots generated rather than the ability to generate shots. And that's something that, you know, you got to weigh both of them, but um, you can't completely... Uh, sleep on the ability to generate those shots and what that might look like in the NBA, right? Like the the, the running joke with RJ was like, he, he can always get his shot and we want to see what it looks like in an offense with space. And we still want to look like what to see, what to see what it looks like in an offense with space several years later. Right. So like, you know, it, it's, it's an interesting question and some that uh, a question that is also relevant to a couple of players from this year's class, but I'll save that for later. The NBA playoffs means next-level basketball. Get in on the first-round action with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. This week, new customers can bet $5 on any team to win and get $150 in free bets instantly. You win no matter what. All DraftKings Sportsbook customers can also bet on NBA hoops with same-game parlays. Combine multiple bets from the same game for a bigger payout. The more legs you add, the more money you can win. Plus, each day of the first round, get a risk-free bet up to $10 if your same-game same parlay doesn't hit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code TBPN, bet $5 on any NBA team to win their game during the first round of playoffs, and get $150 in free bets instantly. That's promo code TBPN at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. Minimum age and eligibility eligibility restrictions apply see show notes for details that was the main difference between those two as prospects by the way because their percentages across the board were pretty similar but as a sophomore culver got up 163s as a freshman rj got up 235 mm-hmm. you know and it, it it just you're you're exactly right it's a skill all right i'm gonna throw out uh Who's a fun one here? I'm trying to think of somebody who's like towing the line on 
on this sort of development. Um, what about... What about P.J. Washington? This is a fun little run sure. here. Yeah, let's that, talk about that. P.J. Washington and Cam Johnson went back-to-back. Cam was considered a reach at 11. P.J. was considered a, you know, a boring, if not solid pick. You know, athletic guy with physical tools. Blue blood, Kentucky, all of that. Um, all that shit. So, <laughs> I was kind of like... Luke Warren, I was kind of just whatever on PJ. I was like, okay, he's cool, but like, I don't really have strong opinions. Cam, I was perhaps unusually high on on uh, compared to other people, just because all of his shooting metrics were like preposterous. And you mm-hmm. know, to get back to the discussion we had at the top of the show about you know not all low hanging fruits are the same. The bet with Cam was always he needs to go from meh to okay on defense because he's six for nine and he needs to be able to hit the Danny Green package which is pump fake dribble shoot and pump fake dribble pass in addition to shoot which he was really good at and to me you're not asking a player to become hot sauce to do those things right like that's a lot easier than saying all right like learn to take it all the way to the rack or whatever so I was like this guy's he's a like ridiculous shooting prospect and and all that so I I mean, I don't know. It was did he have above average development or was that expected development? I legit don't know. So I'm curious what you think about uh not just Cam but uh but PJ too cuz I didn't really have a good bearing on PJ. So I don't even have a good baseline to even speculate on. Yeah, I think um Cam Cam's a good one. I think that his development his development has been aided because he's gotten to play next to spacers, obviously. And he himself is a spacer, but everyone, every kind of player is helped by good (laughs) spacing. And playing next to Paul and Booker and Bridges and Aiton simplifies his role, clarifies his role. Maybe not simplifies, but certainly clarifies it. He's not pushed too much. Um, And because of that, he's been able to excel at, you know, one thing and then another and then another. And he now is to the point where like they have Jay Crowder and Jay Crowder is important for them, but he could, I mean, if Jay Crowder wasn't on this team, they still probably would have been a one seed with how well he played this year. And they'd still probably be two, two with the Mavs in the second round with him Mm. getting all of Jay's minutes. As far as the player he was coming into the league, you know, where that pick got criticized for like overdrafting and kudos to you for being higher on him. Um, thing about Cam, I mean, it, it he was six, nine and he just made every shot he took and he did it for a high major program. And so all of the other factors that uh, people used to nitpick like his age and maybe lack of, you know, stunning athleticism, like, okay, pick those nits, but understand this guy shot 70% at the rim. He shot 42% mid-range. He shot 82% from the line, you know, 55% from two and 46% from three on over 200 attempts. He was, he just made every shot. And you know, that's the, the other guy who has done that in this time frame that we, you know, you mentioned a little earlier was Mikhail Bridges. Now, Mikhail was a better defender, a much better defender, 
but it's not an accident that the Suns acquired those guys in back-to-back drafts. You know, it clearly, they clearly had something that told them we should get these forwards who are big for their position, who can make shots all over the court. And it has served them very, very well. So I think that if anything, uh, his development and he, you know, he wasn't a, like a bad defender at UNC. I think the idea no. was just that he wasn't a standout and he was a little older. And that's where the skepticism creeped in. But that's where I think that the draft evaluators have to more or less take the L. Because I think that the Suns have, it has borne out through them that their bets were correct. And that if you find big wings who can shoot, you know, from everywhere, that you're going to be all right. And that's part of the reason why I was so in on um, Trey Murphy going into the draft last year is the same sort of player. And, you know, he was able to get playoff minutes for the Pels this year, arguably should have gotten more. And so I, you know, I think that Cam, whether it's 66 or whether it's a bit more than that, I don't know. But I think that it it, it was more it's more natural an outcome, a more expected outcome than people maybe necessarily would have thought at draft time. Um, PJ, PJ, I think is a little bit tougher because as I recall, he tried to come out his previous year and the feedback he got was like more consistent effort and you got to work on your three. And he did that in, in his sophomore year, he shot like 42% from three, which uh, obviously, you know, made him a lotto pick, but it was on very, very, again, going back to the RJ conversation, small volume. It was on 78 attempts the whole year, which, you know, you do the math is between two and three a game in a college season, two or three attempts a game, which is not that much. Now he, he again was, pretty efficient from everywhere, but was just kind of a a lower usage guy. Um, And in the NBA, you know, season to season, he's a pretty streaky shooter from distance. He'll, he'll have pure, like, I think he had some game either this year or last year where he had like 40. I think it was actually against Phoenix. It might've been against Phoenix, you know, um, where they were playing five out and, you know, they drew Aiton out and were able to get all these threes up and he'll look great. And there'll be ideas where, you know, this guy's got to be a starter, but then there, and you know, he can close at five. He's this small ball five. He's this super unique, valuable player. Then there will be other times where he plays 10 minutes in a game. And with Hayward there and with miles bridges there, they don't really have room for him in the starting lineup. So, He's still sort of an unsettled case. If I were to sort of narrow it down as to what was expected out of him, I guess I'd ask you the question, did you expect like his handle to get a lot better? Like what sort of what sort of player did you expect him to be in the NBA? I didn't expect him to shoot quite like this and I didn't expect him to be as uh versatile and that's one of the other things that i kind of have struggled with personally is for me i'm good at this is a tangent and i'll make it brief but like i consider myself better at 
evaluating within a certain like range of outcomes or roles. So uh, the perfect example is last year with John Kuminga. I was low on John Kuminga because I was like, he's going to play this traditional wing position and it's not going to work. And he's going to get picked too high because of it. So when the Warriors picked it, I was like, oh, this is going to end very poorly. But they didn't use him as a 3-4. They used him as a 5-4 or a 4-5 or however the hell you want to put it. Mm -hmm. Where all of a sudden his wingspan plays up and his strength plays up despite his, you know, you don't have to wait for him to develop that. He he has those things immediately despite his age. And the decision-making especially on offense, becomes easier. And he's playing in the most space in the NBA. So he gets place that he gets more of a launch pad for his jumping jack stuff when he's getting a running start. And it works beautifully. And you can still develop all the wing stuff slowly while he contributes now, which is like the sweet spot. And Prez looks like a dum-dum because I didn't consider <laughs> that a team would actually try that with him. So now with guys... Uh, I tried to identify, like, what are the different roles they could play on very creative teams, even if it's unlikely. So with PJ, I didn't think anybody was going to use him as a stretch five. Like, even if the skills might have been there underlying, like, I just didn't account for that. So my expectations were perhaps narrowed by that, I think. Yeah, I think. And I wasn't I, I think I was actually on your show before talking in a deeper dive about 2019. I wasn't like all the way in on draft eval. Then that was my first year sort of dipping my, my toe in. Mm. Um, and I didn't know what to make a PJ either. I, if you go back and look at his stats though, now you can sort of see the, the small ball five ness because his, his block rate was high and, you know, he had plenty of dunks to suggest that he was very athletic and that, you know, he would maybe play bigger than he is. You know, his offensive rebound rate was very, very good. All these sort of like hallmarks of of small ball fives. But what's interesting to me is that, you know, yes, Charlotte has used him there, but those lineups haven't been like great lineups. <laughs> yeah. And so there's, but he's also still young. Like if you're going to be a good small ball five, are you going to be a good small ball five at age 22 in the NBA? Probably not unless you're, you know, Draymond Green. And Draymond didn't even come into the league until he was 22 or 23. So maybe the expectation should be that guys who fill that role don't fill it um, competently until they're a little bit older. And they, you know, they've been in the league for a while and rounded out some more of their skill set. That's why he's a super intriguing player. Um, and I, I guess that sort of not confusion, but lack of clarity between roles is those are the guys where, you know, it, they, it might make them quote unquote, a second draft guy, but it makes it harder to come to, to come to a conclusion at this point in time. Normally three years in, you have like a pretty good idea yeah. But I just think that Charlotte front court has been such a mess because they haven't had like any traditional rim protector to sort of organize everything else top down that I think you can find like a big divergence of opinion on PJ. If if PJ had gone to Phoenix, for example, since Cameron went 11th and, you know, PJ was a reasonably efficient shooter in himself, you could see them taking that shot. If he played next to Aiton and Bridges, 
you know, I'd imagine that again, he'd be contributing to a, a winning team now and he'd have more of an assured set of responsibilities now. So maybe his next team, since I think like someone's going to be on the outs on that team, whether it's him or Hayward, um, just because I think they're undergoing a lot of change with the new coach and sort of that team hasn't ascended quite as smoothly as maybe they want to be interesting to see what his next stop is. Um, Cause I still think there's a very good player in there. I think there is like a, a long time NBA starter who can start on good teams in there. Cause he can pass a little bit. Um, he can stay in front of some guys, not everyone, but you know, he can still compete defensively. I just would like to see him in a more settled defensive infrastructure. Yeah, that's a really good one. Um, what he's had in Charlotte is more of a novelty structure than anything. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but I, I, I agree. I think there's someone somewhere in there. Um, before, I, I don't know. There's a lot of good teams he could fit on. So we'll see what happens. I I think there's a decent chance we end up with the boring situation, which is like re-sign him and then figure out what to do with him later. And instead, Hayward is the one that's moved. And you know, there's there's advantages to that, but uh, but that's team building, so we'll save that for another pod. Yeah, um, yeah. So, sorry, yeah. One more thing on PJ. Sorry that I yeah I go meant for to it. Say, uh, is that part of the reason there is a confusion in his role is that he like so he's basically a, a four. He if, unless he plays small ball center, he's a four, mm-hmm. and but he doesn't have like really wingish skills. He doesn't have a crazy first step. He doesn't right. have like this incredible handle. And so he, it, it makes it so that teams are like, or at least Charlotte has tried to find a way to accommodate what he does well, because he clearly does some NBA things very well, but power forward is a very important position in the league. Cause the best players in the league are usually at their best when they're playing quote unquote power forward. Um, you know, Tatum, Jimmy Butler, you know, where they're able to really leverage their speed and their guard skills against maybe slower guys. And if PJ, you know, PJ's not going to be a star. So if he's going to hold up at four, that means that he's going to have to be able to guard those guys at minimum because his offensive game doesn't lend itself to the same sort of guard skills that those other guys have. Exactly. If you, if you can't guard those guys, you're off. You have to make up for it a hell of a lot on offense. And like, that's really the bet with Obi Toppin is that, you know, right. he, can he defend on an Island in a pinch? Sure. But like, you don't want come future playoff time. If he's still in the Knicks, you, it it's just like it's like what we see with with cam actually um cam johnson like he's improved into solid defender but the other teams come playoff time will still run consecutive plays to target for him because improving from bad or meh to okay is all well and good for the 66th percentile outcome but the playoffs is a whole nother ball game and and obi you're you know you're looking at the the two-point stuff is like already done and a, a meal that is fully cooked. You're just waiting on the three point stuff and he has the passing too. So, you know, it's not a guaranteed bet, but it's a reasonable bet. But with PJ, you're right. Like he's not, he's not going off the bounce like that. So you can't just be a Ryan Anderson type stand there and shoot it for either. So it gets a little dicey. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we'll see. We'll see what's up there. Um, 
I want to talk about a couple of more guys. I just had them on my thing. Where is it? Do do do. Um. Shoot. Uh. Three guys, real quick. Just wanted to see like where you are at if you have landed on anything on where they have ranked on the improvement scale. One is Cole Anthony. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Uh, another is Malik Monk, who was the 11th pick in 2017. Mm-hmm. And uh, the last one is Tyrese Maxey, who was picked 21st, but many people on draft Twitter in 2020 had him closer to in the 10 to 15 range. So, you know, I picked these guys because they're all, you know, this We'll, we'll get to the current crop of guys in the part two of this episode, but the Knicks are likely picking somebody who is of the general eight to 16 pick quality level, barring an unusual situation or a trade um, without getting into like big board rankings or anything like that. So I think these guys kind of give a different, each of them gives a different flavor of the types of talent who tend to be available around that late lotto, you know, with some guys having upside and it getting fulfilled and other guys having perceived upsides or not getting fulfilled. So uh, any thoughts on those dudes? Monk, Anthony, Maxi? Yeah, uh, just quickly to do we got, to do sort of Maxi and Anthony together since they're the same class. You know, they got compared frequently, um, not only because they were both, I believe, top five uh, high school recruits and Cole Anthony was number one at one point. Um, but because they both sort of, and Cole more so than, than Maxie, but they both sort of underachieved in their lone year, you know, Maxie, you know, paid his dues as, you know, Kentucky guard whose skills were suppressed and Cole had his injury at North Carolina and fought his way back, but was, did not really show the same degree of explosion or physical dominance that he'd shown um, when he was in high school. And so I was probably on the lower end for both of those guys. I, I liked Maxi a bit more, but still had both of them around 20 or so in their draft class. Cause it, they both sort of failed the sort of, star test for me at guard where I didn't see either one becoming a star. And so if you're not a star at guard, you know, might as well take a shot on all these other kinds of wings, but Cole, I think it's hard to say it's hard to like, it depends on which Cole you're going off of. If you're going off of the guy that got was legitimately the number one high school recruit in the country, then I would say that he has not lived up to expectations because he is um I think that his future in the NBA is unlikely to be that of a starter because I don't think he's a good enough defender. I don't think he's a good enough distributor to to be a starter at his size. He could be a very effective sixth man and he could be a sixth man on a good team and he could make a lot of money doing that. But for someone who I, I I guess he went 15th to the Magic, 14th, 15th, right around there. Um, for someone who, like, most people thought he was at least a lot of level prospect, right? Like, that was his grade. And some people had him in the top 10. Um, I would think that you would want him to become more than 
possibly a very effective sixth man. Um, for Maxi, the temptation would be to say like, this is a crazy outlier development. Like he's really improved more than people thought he would. He also falls into the, the RJ Sexton, like psycho. And I mean that obviously as a compliment, um, psych like psychotically high work ethic type. Um, I guess the the shooting is the easiest thing to talk about because he he literally is one of the most efficient players in the league just when you eliminate free throws from the equation. Just the shots that he takes in regulation seem to go in all the time. Um, and I think what is notable about that is he does a lot of it as um, like a secondary or tertiary option off the ball. And what he struggled at so much at Kentucky was playing off the ball. Like his, his spot up jumper was not good. And he would, you know, he would still show his burst every now and again, but he also struggled a little bit with shoot dribble pass decisions. And when he, when he got the ball and uh, when he would choose whether or not to attack. And so, he is so decisive now and he like, he makes up his mind in an instant and is at the rim in a second now um, that he's better than I thought he was going to be, you know, and I, and his three point percentage is wild. I know he shot well as a high school player and did not shoot well from three in college, but I think you'll find people who say that, you know, they expected him he to be this guy. But... Real quick on the go, shooting. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. 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 That was one of the things like we talked about what are, what are the expected shooting improvements i mean not shooting improvements just improvements for a young player and low hanging fruits especially for a young guy like um cuz i did some pretty deep dives on him. i ended up being high on him but even with that i was like kind of nervous cuz you t- take for three of his four high school years his college year and his rookie year he was a bad three point shooter so five out of six years, he was a bad three-point shooter. Mm. But it tested my spirit and my soul, Chuck, because I loved the way his shot looked. I didn't think – I thought it was a little bit of a low release, but I was like, this is not a 32% shooter, which is like what he had shot over like a zillion threes at that point, you know, at young age, of course. But like there's that. And then, you know, you mentioned the off-ball stuff, which was extra weird because Kentucky had him running around like Rip Hamilton, even though he was clearly not – that wasn't his jam. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Coach Cal works in mysterious ways. So I'm like, <laughs> is he bad off ball or is he just being used off ball? It's probably a mix. Like, but can he deserve on ball much more? I don't know. So, you know, I was definitely struggling with all that stuff, um, which is the reason why I picked him for this question because it's not an easy answer. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. That With Kentucky jams all of this stuff up. And to yeah. that point, like, <laughs> Monk, I. I don't remember Monk as much as a prospect. So why don't you lead off on Monk? I have some thoughts, but why don't you you go? Because I'm sure he was right in the mix for the Knicks that year as well. Because that was him and Frank and DSJ and Kennard and Donovan Mitchell. They were all of a piece. Yeah, and it was mostly the first three guys. Um, most There was a couple of people who were fans of Donnie Mitchell, but not most of them. And I would say 90% of the people who tweet about, why didn't the Knicks take Donovan Mitchell were not among that group. So 
Uh, if you're one of those people, you can kindly fuck off and change the channel on your podcast because uh, <laughs> you're probably a liar. And if you have receipts, at me because I would like to congratulate you and uh, amplify your draft analysis if you're that good at it. Um, so, yeah, it was Monk, DSJ, Frank, uh, Monk was a shooting guard who was small. So I was like, eh, I don't know how this works. Can he play point guard? He has basic pick and roll reads, but... On the other hand, he does all the things that make me rational, which is like have awesome crossovers and cool dunks and shit like that. And, you know, one of the few players to transcend the straight jacket of role that Cal imposes on his players by just like having these wonderful outings where he just kind of runs amok, which is not something you see a lot among Kentucky players. Um, And... What made his situation complicated is because lot so much of his profile depended on him being a ridiculously good shooter, which he is now in the NBA, but that took some time to come to fruition. He struggled to adapt to the NBA and you know there was some off the court stuff which he went through as a young man and right. that made it tougher, which is you know like you were saying earlier, whether it's that or it's converse, which is the work ethic stuff it's it's hard to incorporate that like on the outside without really knowing what's going on. So the default for us, my default is similar to yours regarding work ethic is like, unless somebody I really trust tells me one thing, I'm just going to assume it's mostly fine, right? Like one way or the other. And that's that because all these guys work hard at, at some level, probably harder than most people work at their jobs. So uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I was, I was a big fan of his, and I I don't remember how high I was. I think I had him. I definitely had him top 10, and he was definitely the one. No, I wanted DSJ the most, and then him, and then Frank. I liked all of them, but I liked uh, DSJ a lot more. But um, when Monk came in, and, and he kind of had a rough start to his career, obviously that was a below-average outcome to me. If you kind of erase the the path and just focus on where he is right now, which is hopefully about to earn a nice contract for the first time in his life. Cause he deserves it. And mm-hmm. he's probably should have earned it last year. If that was a smart team. Um, but you know, teams wanted some more sample size, whatever. I, I get it. I dig it. So now they got that. And hopefully he gets a multi-year deal from someone, you know, nothing crazy, but he'll get something. And I'm like, Okay, 11th pick, sure, his high outcome was some sort of like CJ McCollum bombs away type thing, and that's probably not going to happen. But as far as a bench player goes or a guard who can start and play up because of his strength and length and athleticism, like those starting guard on a solid team with his skills is definitely in play. It's not automatic because like you said, if you're smaller, even if you're really good at stuff, the the deck is just stacked against you. And you know, he's not like Colin Sexton small. I think he's six, four, six, three with yeah, six, like, three, six, four, like a plus three or four. And uh, he came into the league skinny and now he's like, you know, he's not jacked or anything, but he's not like a twig either. So, um, you know, he's not going to guard a power forward, on a post-up or something like, you know, Frank Nielakina is, who's much bigger, but like, 
So, 66th percentile outcome. Ah, gun to my head? I would probably say, yeah, that's right about where he is right now, even though the path to getting here was really weird and unexpected. <laughs> yeah, and when you said erase, like, remove the, the, the path, I, I, this conversation is getting me to think a lot about role. Like, mm. we, the role with... Um, with like RJ Barrett, very clear because he's going to play on the wing. You know, right. the role with Cam Johnson, Mikhail Bridges, those guys, you know, very clear because of how well they can shoot in space. And um, again, that they play on the wing. PJ role gets a little fuzzier. And I think that Monk is also a little bit fuzzier because though you, you correctly point out that he can play up a little. You know, this is an off-ball guy at six four, six three. Um, I actually think one of the most pleasant skills of his now is his passing, which I think is underrated. I think he's like a a pretty good passer and a, a, certainly a pretty good connecting passer. Yeah, um, he's one of those guys who like he fell short of his high point guard ceiling, but the passing skills that were inadequate for him running an offense are fine for being a secondary guy. Right. Right. And if you, where I struggle with that, not with the passing, but with his ultimate role as a secondary guy is that there aren't, I don't think there are that many Mm -hmm. guys who fulfill a secondary role who are that size, unless they can really, really score. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like CJ McCollum. <laughs> but, or, or like Colin Sexton in the right, right environment. You know, again, Colin, Six, Colin Sexton goes to Detroit. Cade's still the best player on that team. And the second best player is probably the guy they draft. And so Sexton is probably looking at being the third or fourth best player on the team, but he penetrates so well. And that's such a crucial offensive skill that he's going to like be a good starter on a team like that for monk. It's there's still a path. I think to like, if he is a complete knockdown shooter, which he still has a chance at being, or, you know, he finds some other layer of development in his scoring package, then I think he might be able to be that guy, but he, in order to find a winning situation, is going to need kind of like Sexton to be in a situation where he is sort of the smallest guy on his team's starting or closing unit. And because and, I'm not saying that he like can't defend or that he's necessarily a bad defender, but you just need to be so versatile of a defender. If you're not one of the two best offensive players on your team, like the, all the teams that are left in the playoffs now, all eight of them, they have like one guy under six foot five that starts or closes games. And that's about it. Everyone else is bigger because they can all, they all need to be able to switch and check these defensive assignments. And in some cases like the Bucks or the Celtics, their guy who's under six, four is an all defense guard in and of themselves and can guard wings and really switch. So like the barrier is, is very high. If you don't have, ideal size and you're not this offensive star, then you've got to be very, very, very versatile. And I think that Monk is young enough to where that still might be able to be unlocked. And again, for an 11th pick for a guard, 
it's probably, you know, it's certainly within the expected range. Um, because, you know, if you, if you're an offensive star, you, you know, or a star prospect, like I guess De'Aaron Fox was, you would expect to go in the top five, but finding those winning roles is not easy. And it's not always the fault of the prospect either. Cause Monk clearly is an NBA player who can do good NBA things. He just needs to find like the very precise role where he can contribute to winning, do, you know, playing his game. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Like. I I often, perhaps to a fault, break development down to its individual components rather than the how it fits into the bigger picture of like the playoff teams. And you know, to me, I look at Monk and I see somebody who is a good finisher who became a great finisher, and somebody who was a good shooter with elite shooting ability who finally capitalized on it and most importantly had a weirdly late start to actually delivering the volume. Mm -hmm. Um, Like for guys who are playing that connective role, you have to get up like double digit threes per a hundred at a high percentage. Like he started out his career getting up 13, 12 threes per a hundred, but only 34, 33%. Like that's not going to cut it. The last two years he's averaged about, 10 or 11 threes per 100 at basically 40%. And if you watch Monk, you know it's not just, you know, catch and shoot. It's off the balance. It's unbalanced. It's open. It's not open. It's it's all that stuff. And it's not an accident that, you know, when you combine that with, like, the barest level of connective chops and his athleticism finishing and, you know, he's not a good bad defender. He's not a good defender, but he's passable, like, Last two years, since he's finally leaned into that, or not leaned into it because he was trying before, but he's finally been able to deliver on that role. That's the first two years of his life that he had a good plus minus, a positive plus minus, hugely negative first three years in the NBA. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Finally began to hit threes at a high level. You know, like I don't know if that's a starter level player. It's definitely a playoff rotation player. Is that above average development for an 11th pick maybe i don't know i don't know uh so you know it's it he seems like sort of the guy who he was also you know you said it before about another player that or maybe it was about monk there he's like not a twig but not physically like an outlier at his position and for guys like that who come in at 19 years old it's probably not going to be until they're in their mid twenties where they're ready to be a winning player anyway. I mean, that's what happened with Seth Curry. You know, he bounced around because he physically was a little underdeveloped. So it, it was going to take time before he could play comfortably 28 minutes. Wes Matthews, bro. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This guy's getting big minutes again. I, he came to the Knicks and I thought that was the end of his career for his two games. 27 minutes per game for two games, shooting 21% in two games. Uh, Surprise, that sample meant nothing. (laughs) Wes Matthews is still very much doing Wes Matthews stuff at age 35. Yeah, and obviously, and who knows what Monk would be doing if you're on the Bucks, but that situation very much caters to, to, to Wes because they don't need their guards, or they certainly don't need their guards besides Drew Holiday to penetrate because they have the 
the most destructive paint force in the game. And so you can have a narrower role like Wes or Pat Connaughton and contribute to winning. So, yeah, I, it's interesting. You would think that LA would be a good situation for Monk. They just are so, with all of their injuries and all, that whole mess, everything this year, they needed so much defense to surround LeBron with. And Monk just isn't versatile enough on that end to like be an asset by himself. You know, yeah. they just, that they, they, they sort of had bigger yeah. fish to fry. That was, that was rough. Cause like, they needed. They couldn't do both. They either needed the defense or needed the shooting. They didn't have enough players who could do both. So, right. like some of the when the injuries hit and Monk got big minutes and and scored a lot for them, like they did play well. But that's not going to get it done versus the good teams, and it didn't get it done versus the good teams. And then <laughs> when Monk's minutes were reduced in favor of players who shot worse, that also was not going to get it done for the good teams. So you know it was. It's kind of a tough situation. And like, I'm with you that I think on a team like the Bucks, you know, there's a lot of teams that could use a guy like Monk. Like, even though, you know, every team like the Bucks has, you know, shooters, Grayson Allen, whoever. Grayson Allen, 14% of his shots, zero to three feet. Um, Malik Monk was at 24%, which is a very good number, even for. And for an off-ball player, that's an outstanding number. Like, we've seen it. He has enough dribble chops to get in there. Sometimes the decision-making can get a little dicey, but he has the athleticism to get in there. So, like, it's all to say, when you're answering the 66th percentile question, I've cherry-picked a lot of guys who are, you know, three or four years removed from the draft. And there's usually not enough time to answer that question. So all we can do is kind of judge where they're at. So, uh, you know, the lawyer in me would say, given incomplete, it depends great to most of these guys. <laughs> it depends. To get out yeah. of, uh, you know, being accountable here. But um, anyway, this was a very awesome setup episode. Uh, people, if you're listening to this and you're like, why haven't you all talked about the 2022 draft? Hold on to your butts in the words of uh samuel l jackson <laughs> it's coming this is a two-parter because chuck episodes can't be normal one commute two commute type podcast this has to fill up a whole week of content for you suckers all right so you can learn something from the guru if you haven't listened to the chucking darts podcast highly recommend it to give you an idea of what that podcast is like. The episodes regularly run longer than this one. Unlike mine, it's pretty much a steady beat of episodes throughout the year, not just draft season. Anybody who's... I shouldn't say anybody who's anybody. I should say everybody. Many people have had an opportunity to join Chuck because he's really good at uh, looking for different guests and perspectives, and that's one of the things I enjoy the most about his pod is you get a huge range of people from all parts of basketball land. And uh, it's really good stuff. If you're uh, if you like Jeff Strickland, you will most definitely like the chucking dart spot. So I highly recommend you check that out. Um, Chuck, is there anything you want to plug or point our listeners to before we uh, head home? 
No, man, that was beautiful. Thank you so much. Uh, no, I'm at Chucking Darts. That's the only thing to plug. It's the Chucking Darts NBA and Draft Podcast. I, I, I that podcast has actually been on a bit of a a mini hiatus. You know, it's just taking a little a little belated spring break um, as other stuff has taken priority. But uh, I'm hoping to have an episode out this week on uh, Leonard Miller, hopefully. Ooh. Who, you know, for, for those, if you know, you know, you know, sort of the, the latest man of mystery that's confounding and tantalizing everyone analyzing that draft. So uh, looking forward to that. And I've been doing some playoff stuff uh, most recently. My most recent episode was about the Dallas Mavericks. That one's aging pretty well because that was me and Lauren Gunn uh, calling them a title contender. And that was in the first round. Now they're 2-2 two, two with the Suns. So we'll see where that Shout goes. out Lauren, friend of Pod Strickland. Yeah, uh, Lauren's great. One of, one of the only... Actually, we've had a weird number of Mavs people on our pod given our historical hatred of that franchise but now they're cool because chris Stapps is gone they're not the ops no more so i'm, o- I'm okay with the mavs doing all right so, that's right um, good episode i did check that one out that was good stuff yeah so yeah whatever like i'll i'll be doing more i'll be doing more playoff stuff i actually might um when i get off of here record a playoff episode now just get something in the can since we're all we're we're now in the we're at like the two two point of all these series it's a very exciting time so thank you very much for having me on all right dude you guys heard him follow him at chucking darts it's good stuff listeners we got more content coming not only the uh steady beat of short draft profiles but finally some longer feature pieces coming out on the strict.land so be on the lookout for that in between this and your next episode of draft strickland and on that note we will see you later Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you mean cellar. the mini fridge. Yeah, it's a mini yeah, it's fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.